You're listening to Coding Blocks, but you already knew that. This is episode 162, and uh, welcome aboard again. Uh, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher if you haven't already subscribed. Oh, and uh, please keep all arms and vehicles inside the crap. Uh, inside the arms? Ah, uh, geez. Yeah. Okay, I'm just going to. This is why I stick to the script. Uh, you were the one that didn't want to stick to the script, Joe. Oh, busted. We were, hey, wait, wait up. Pull out the dirty laundry there. Well, I mean, you brought it up. <laughs> Not in front of the fault. kids. Not in front of the kids. All right, you're right. I like it when mommy and daddy fight. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, all right, who's this uh, third guy? So I guess I guess I'll go say, uh, yeah, go ahead and visit us at CodyBlocks.net where you can find our show notes, sample discussions, more, send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at CodyBlocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at CodyBlocks or head to www.CodyBlocks.net and you can find all our social links at the top of the page. And with that, following the script is Alan Underwood. Oh, no, man. Like, who has the, the CDO now? Like, <laughs> we just thought that my CDO was bad, but apparently Alan's is worse because he couldn't not skip over that. <laughs> like, yeah, gotta watch, gotta watch Wapner. That Wapner. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, you just speed ran the uh, intro there. <laughs> hey, who are you? Joe Zach. Yes. And who are you? Uh, Michael. Outlaw. All right. Outlaw. There we go. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Learn in-demand tech skills without scrubbing through videos, whether you're just beginning your developer career, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. So last episode, we talked about single and multi-leader replication, and we told you about the reasons you would want replication, like uh, failure tolerance, scalability, geolocation, and uh, single replication is a lot easier. I'm telling you, by the way, uh, so you don't have to go back and listen. This is the recap. If you just want to start here, awesome. Did you, you want to just go back? summarize four hours in like 30 seconds? Is that yeah. what you just said? Okay. Yeah. So skip those old episodes. You're all caught up. Everything we've talked about in 161 episodes. You're, you're with us. Cool. All right. Uh, so use the interface. And use it. That's right. <laughs> yep. Now you're all caught up. Uh, did want to mention that having multiple leaders sounds great on paper. It gets you better high availability, participants, and, uh, you know, you can spread out more. So, uh, per, you know, potentially performance as well, but it's more complicated and much more likely to go wrong. So if you can avoid it, the general guidance is to not do it. And now we're going to go into wacky land and we're going to talk about leaderless replication. And I want to do one last reminder, which is that we are still only talking about the use case where a hundred percent of your data can fit on one machine or one node. Or in the case of replication, the, all the data fits on every single node. All of it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's still it's still the same de- the full same set. set of data replicated on right. every node. Right. It's a copy. So, everywhere. yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, we might as well just call this like anarchy replication because that would be about the same meaning, right? I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, all right. So... You know, we like to always say thank you to those that took the time to leave, leave us a review. So, um, <clears throat> huh. I was going to say this one and then I realized that's not what I thought it said, but I, I guess I've already, uh, you know, started. So here we go. So from iTunes, we have, uh, Tunzer. So thank you, Tunzer. I like the yeah. confused look on your face. <laughs> well, at first I thought it was like, like I, 
uh, you know, like dyslexia set in or something, you know, like I transposed some of the, the things. So I thought it was tuners and I'm like, Oh, I got this one. I can know how to say the word tuners. And I'm like, wait, that S is in the wrong place. <laughs> uh, we read goods. Threw me off. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, that was from the, 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 it is, um, you know, review there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Well, we uh, we totally just blew through the the intro of the show, hundred uh, percent S tier. So now we can get on to the meat. Yeah, let's do or it. Be like products, whatever, you, whatever, you, whatever you want. Uh, uh, yeah. It. Move move along. Well, what right, would that so. be called? Like uh, incredible. Um, impossible. Impo- Here's the impossible tofu of intro. the show right here. No, it was the <laughs> it was the impossible intro. Yes. Right. And now we're into the tofu of the show. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so talk about leaderless uh, replication. So when you have leaders and followers, still we're going we're to kind of mention a few things that we've mentioned in other episodes just to kind of make it a little easier. Because, yeah, it's been two weeks since you listened to this uh, last episode, right? So when you have leaders and followers, the leader is responsible for making sure that the followers get operations in the correct order. And that's really important because sometimes you have causal data where something uh, has to happen before something else, like an order has to be placed before you can ship it. Or, um, you know, if you're incrementing numbers or making kind of changes like that, uh, then it's very important that you get things in the right order. Debits need to happen before credits, if that's how it happened in the real world, talking about a bank. What if we just let every replica take rights, made them all equal? It'd be a crazy world. Crazy world. It's definitely so, easier to reason about how yeah. um forget the complications that might be involved with with multi-leader or uh with with replication in general. It's just easier to think about that if you had a, you know, a, a computer science class homework project where you're like, "Hey, write some program to where you're only going to have one leader uh who's going to take the rights, but you're going to distribute reads." <clears throat> You know, that's a complicated problem, but it sounds a lot easier to think about to replicate the one set of changes from the one place than when you say, hey, all of these replicas can now take rights and now figure out how to like merge those things together and make sure that there's not conflicts or if there is how you're going to deal with it. It's something more elegant about leaderless. It just seems simpler. You don't have special roles. You don't have topology diagrams. Uh, the devil's in the details, you know, there's some kind of restrictions on, on, uh, what you can do. And there's some things you have to give up, but overall, I mean, if, if there were no pros and no cons and you, you know, you had to kind of pick one, I think this is the one you would want, uh, because it's, it's less crazy. Well, I, I think it was going back. If I remember right in this portion of the book, I'd have to go back and find the exact quote, but <clears throat> I think this is another one of those times of those guys, those crazy kids in the seventies. Like they were, they were so far ahead. Cause if I remember right, this was like leaderless was kind of like the way that they thought about things. And then for some reason they stopped, they were like, you know, relational databases and SQL took over. And then they stopped thinking about things in terms of like leaderless, uh, you know, problems. And now here we are in this world to where that's all we think about. And it wasn't really until Amazon, uh, kind of like brought this back into everyone's mind with uh, their use of an internal uh, data system called Dynamo. And then that's what kind of inspired everybody else to like start thinking about it again. And then um, 
other systems started getting created that that they now refer to as Dynamo like. Yeah, but we have to call these out because one of them has a really cool name. So it's not React, it's not Cassandra, it's Voldemort. <laughs> I mean, uh, hey, you're not supposed to say that. Yeah, you can't, yeah, you say, can't it, say it. <laughs> I don't know how we were supposed to say it. Yeah. Um, Th- uh, yeah. That which shall not be named. But I think, though, going back to what you said, and I think, I don't remember if they touched on in this chapter or not, though, one of the, you know, they said that, yes, it was popular, and then relational databases came in, destroyed it, and and now it's come back, right, in the past several years. But I want to say a lot of this is based around, like, transactions, right, like ACID-type transactions and all that, right? Like, I think that's why the relational stuff got popular, and this still this doesn't fit every single use case, right? This doesn't fit necessarily the whole order shipping type thing, like what you were talking about earlier, right? Because I don't know that any of these databases support transactions on a level like, hey, you wrote to this table, then this table, then this table, right? Like, I don't think it does that. So keep in mind when we talk about this, you still have to know the use case for where this is going to fit for you. Well, I think that's where um, Joe's going to hate this. So Joe brought it up earlier, so blame Joe, of a new term, new to us term, called new SQL. <laughs> and from the very brief uh, thing that I read about it, I think that's where they were going, where the purpose of new SQL was to bring in like that type of ACID compliance guarantees on top of these, uh, you know, quote, no SQL type systems, right? Which, I mean, leaderless isn't necessarily no SQL. But, um, I don't know, for some reason, like in my mind, I kind of, I kind of coupled the two together. Yeah. I don't know of any, of any of these leaderless ones that are not no sequel. Right. Yeah. If you remember. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say it's a good use of a double negative. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, I was just going to say, too, uh, if you remember when we talked about that, uh, we did a whole episode talking about relational versus uh, document databases. And uh, part of the, the the benefit of going with relation relational database is that the database and the query optimizer uh, are able to kind of put things together in a smart way. And so you don't necessarily know how, to, how you have to use your database. You have to break it apart into pieces that make sense that model your world but with document databases, you kind of have to know how your data is going to be used because things like joins don't work very well mm-hmm. uh, and transactions, um, breaking these into multiple parts. Like you kind of want to centralize that stuff. And so your things are happening in like more atomic rights that kind of model a thing, but sounds flexible. If you need to make changes to that stuff or break it apart, it's more painful. And so I, I think every leaderless solution that we're talking about here, I kind of think of as being in that world. These are uh, not necessarily document databases like Cassandra's considered um, what do you call like wide, wide column or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's columnar. Uh, Wait, that's, you know what? (laughs) I'm just going to stop because I'm going to get it wrong. But uh, I didn't say it's not uh, technically a document database. And so um, there's trade-offs there, but uh, like everything we're talking about with leader, those here, we were talking about no SQL databases. I did want to call out one thing though. So in the previous episode, I had, um, mistakenly referred, you know, was started talking about Kafka as an example of, um, uh, what was the, Oh shoot. I forgot what it was. Multi-leader. Yeah. As a multi-leader, uh, example. And then Alan correctly corrected me in saying, no, 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 no. 
if you think about it, if you think about the individual partitions, Kafka is definitely a single leader for a given partition strategy. And, and, you know, I had this like epiphany, like, oh, you're like, oh, crap. Yeah, Alan's right. Yeah, that that would be the case. As I said, I'm rereading this book, right? So I, as I was going back through and rereading this specific chapter again, I noticed that in the first portion of the of that chapter where we were discussing single leader, they in fact referenced Kafka as a single leader example mm, for that. So I was like, oh man, it was like right there in the book, and I had forgotten about it the first time. There's a lot. There's a lot to grok here. So to kind of walk it back a little bit, we said, uh, what if we said there there were no leaders, no followers, just <laughs> just replicas. Everybody is equal. Yeah, everybody is equal. Then what? Uh, if you need to do your rights, you can write to any of them. And the problem there is, uh, what if the one you try to write to is down? And so, just the, the kind of general strategy here is that you're going to want to write to several of your replicas at once. Which sounds a little goofy at first. We should go ahead and and prepare uh, people with their propeller hats because we're going to talk a lot about W, R, and N as part of this episode because this portion of the chapter was all about uh, your W plus your R greater than N. Yeah, and uh, to to say what those are, uh, it's the number of writers that you do the number of nodes that you write to from a client perspective the number of nodes that you read from your r and the total number of nodes and so specifically here when i say you need to write to several replicas i'm saying <laughs> you're going to configure that database to say hey clients we need you to write to this many nodes whenever you want to make a single change well hold up let's back up so you started on this yes we so what we started here was there are two, uh, there's at least a couple of ways to do this whole writing to multiple replicas. You can either do it like what you just said, Jay-Z, which is the client says, hey, I know that there's five nodes. I need to write to three of them. Or the client can write to a coordinator node that will then try and write to the other nodes. So it can either be on the client itself or it can be on on some sort of server or service that that distributes those rights themselves. So those are like the two common ways to do it. Now, since you brought up the coordinator, though, because immediately you would think to yourself, like, "Oh, well, isn't that doesn't that mean that he becomes the single one that you're writing to, and like he's just figuring out how to replicate the data out?" Then, but they specifically called out the coordinator why that is not the case. Because, and I'm trying to remember that part now, because the coordinator, there is no, uh, there was like no guarantee as to like who he might write to when he might do the right. If I remember correctly, do you, yeah. do you remember that portion of yeah, it's it? Totally out of your hands. Yeah. Like, like you're, you're, you're giving to him. I'll, I'll look for the exact way that they phrased the coordinator. Uh, yeah. I might write to these five this time and those five the next time. And it's, it's out of your client's hands. But the net result is that whenever you do any writing, instead of writing to a single leader, even when we had multiple leaders, you still only wrote to one leader and it was in charge of kind of spreading things out. But in this case, you literally do write to multiple replicas. And uh, we'll talk about those numbers and the ratios and why that happens here in a minute. But just want to kind of get the, the general philosophy of rights out here is when you're talking about single leader and multi-leader, you write to a leader and it replicates out. 
when you're talking about leaderless replication, you write to multiple, multiple nodes, which still sounds goofy to me. Yeah, it's weird, but if you think about it, it it's a simple approach to the problem, right? I mean, yep. it, it really is. Now, the interesting thing about this is, though, is they say, "Hey, how do you keep these operations in order?" Right? Like, if if I if I write three things out and and I need to go to three different nodes each time, how do you keep them in order? You don't. <laughs> you, you don't. You just write them and and that's it. Yeah, there's a couple of advanced techniques for like cases where you really need to do something, and you can kind of um, you know play a couple of tricks there that we'll we'll talk about a little bit. But for the most part, the best you can do with leaderless database is to not have data that you update. So you know you can get around it, you can work around it, you can deal with consequences. But if you just have like log only type data, like analytics data, clickstream type stuff, this is perfect. You just write. You don't care as long as the data eventually shows up on all the replicas. So what? You just write, 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 write. You write to multiple. That's the the price you're paying, and everything ends up fine. It's when you have to make updates or changes or um, deal dealing with causal relationships where like something has to happen to change the status of something that happened before that you get into trouble. And it's and it's worth noting that the reason why we're talking about the ordering and why why there is no enforcement of the order here is when we were talking about single leader or multi leader replication it was necessary, right? Like when it would try and push those, those rights to their replicas, they needed to do it in order to ensure that it was handling the transactions and all that kind of stuff properly. Right. So, okay. so, you know, just be aware that that's why it's important to know that this doesn't enforce that. Which is, so the coordinator piece fits in nicely here. So I, f- I found what I was looking for and um, the reason why the coordinator doesn't count um, as because your first inclination would be to think of, hey, if I'm going to write all of my things, my my data to the coordinator, and and he's just going to blast out the changes, then that makes him the single uh, write for it. He is basically like a single leader thing, uh, you know, set up at that point because I'm going to write it to him and he's going to replicate it out. But you could give him three things to write, and there there's no guarantee that that coordinator is going to write them in the order that you gave them, and that is why. The coordinator in a leaderless replication setup is not considered to be a single leader replication strategy. Okay. So because of the ordering. Yeah. Cause, cause the coordinator, specifically the, the, in the book, it says, um, unlike a leader database where there's any kind of leader, uh, the cord, the coordinator does not enforce a particular ordering of the rights. Okay. okay. All right. So, so into the next section where we talk about these multiple writes and multiple reads, like what do you do if your client or your coordinator isn't able to write to, to all the nodes or, or multiple nodes? What if, what if one of them is down or two of them are down? Yep. And we got an important concept here, uh, an important vocabulary word that we're going to mention a lot. And that is quorum. And you can think of a quorum as being uh, the minimum number of nodes that need to be in agreement for something to be accepted. So you can imagine uh, almost like a, you know, like a meeting of Congress or some big committee, you might say, in order for this law to pass, you need 60% uh, votes in the affirmative. And there can be senators or uh, you know people that are not there that day or abstain or vote the opposite, but you need to have some sort of percentage in order for this thing to count. And that's kind of what we're talking about with a quorum here. We say you've got 10 nodes in order uh, to have a quorum. We'll say uh, maybe you have to have six 
that confirm that write for the same account. And that's why you write to multiple is because one of those might be down, but as long as you achieve that number that you're aiming for, that percentage that you're aiming for, and we say that you've got quorum and we say that that wrote that write took. And, and specifically, if I remember right, like that configuration setting that you would set for the number of writes, it's not, hey, just write to these three nodes and that's, it. you know, pick three nodes and write to three. It was write to all the nodes that you can write to, but yeah. you only need to get back three successful responses Right. For, for this to, thing to consi- be considered successful. And so like, you know, this is where the, 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 you know, the book keeps going on with the math of like a uh, W plus R greater than N because in, in an ideal scenario, you would want the number of write nodes plus the number of read nodes. If it, if that's greater than the number of nodes total by once you round up, um, then, then you're guaranteed that there's going to be overlap there so that when your reads happen, at least one of those reads is going to be, is going to come from new source because your reads are also going to come from multiple sources too. So you're going to read from as many as you can. And then the client miraculously, you know, you know, never take for granted the drivers that you use for like your, <laughs> when you like the next time you're like, Hey, I got to use this, uh, you know, Postgres SQL driver to, to read or this uh, JDBC driver to read from this data source. Ne- you'll never take those things for granted again. So that, that thing reads from as many as it can and then miraculously figures out that, Oh, this is the one that has the later data. That's going to be the ultimate result that I, that I use from the thing. Right. And, and if you had a total of five nodes, for example, uh, and you had the read and the writes both set to, uh, be three, which they said that typically, you know, you would set W equal to R, um, in those situations, then, uh, you know, that's, that's your, because it's six, because three plus three is greater than five. You're guaranteed that at least one of those nodes that you uh, wrote to will be one of the nodes that you read from. Yeah. So just to recap that, what we're saying here is the general strategy is when you write, you write to every node and you need confirmation from some number, which we call quorum, say that this has been accepted by at least so many. And at that point you consider the write done and you can stop listing. You don't care about the return. And then when you read any data, you ask to read from all of the nodes and when you get that R number back of reads, that's when you can say, okay, I've got my read back. I can move on. And the question is then, uh, you know, how many do you need for reading and writing? And like Outlaw said, the trick is your number of writers that you wait for and the number of readers that you wait for needs to be greater than the total number of nodes because that's how you make sure that you've get an overlap. Because if you read and you get some data that says this and some data that says that, then you need to basically fix that up and make sure that you get the latest data. And by having this overlap, that's how you make sure that you've got the, the almost, almost perfect shot at getting the real up to date data. But so just to be careful here, that is when we talk about having your readers plus writers greater than the number of nodes, right? When we talk about that particular equation, that is if you want to almost like what you said, Joe, if you want to guarantee that you're going to get back fresh data, that does not have to be how you configure things. They even speak about that in the book, meaning that let's say that you care more about fast writes and 
and you you don't care as much about the reads and getting back you know the freshest data possible you might make your your quorum on writes really low and then make your reads higher or maybe keep it low too just because you only want that acknowledgement of that write that it happened right now this comes with the trade-off of fault tolerance right like if you say that i only want one writer to confirm then that means that your data only went to one replica, but your latency is ultra low, right? I think this was the scenario, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this was the scenario where they said where you would do that kind of configuration is because if you, you okay, so going back to a common theme in this book is you need to understand your data and the usage patterns of how you your use, use case. that. Yep. And if your data usage pattern is going to be such that, say, 98% of the time, 99% of the time, you're going to be doing reads. Then in that scenario, if I recall, that that was the given scenario where they were saying like, you might not care to do the rights, uh, you know, to, 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 to a quorum of those because <clears throat> you're going to do it so little that who cares? Yes. And you could say, I never want a reader to uh, get older data. So I would say, Read from every single node then. Make sure you right. get every response and make sure that the response that you eventually return to the customer, the user of the page, whatever, make sure that that is the latest copy of the data. Well, now be careful because there were, the, he, the author did call out um, that if you were to set your W or your R to be equal to every node, then you cannot uh, sustain a single node outage without failing the entire okay. system. <clears throat> And you're but, as slow as the slowest response that you get there, too. Yeah. Right. So what you'd probably do in that situation, just if we were going to be hypothetical here, let's say that you had 11 nodes available. In that situation, you might make it to where your writes go to three nodes and your reads go to nine and then that way you guarantee that you're always going to be reading from one of them that has it, right? So your writers can happen that way so that you're guaranteed to get the latest data outside of a few caveats, which I don't think we go into that because there are some very weird edge cases to where it doesn't happen. But but that's well, the thing. It would still have to be – it would still have to – like even in that case where there, it's unbalanced, where R and W are unbalanced, it's still – in order to have that, quote, guarantee, then – R plus W would still have to be greater than right. N. That's why I'm saying if and you not care equal, about the reads, that's, if you care, if you care about read speed though, or, or correctness, you might make that one higher than your rights, right? It, it all depends on what you're trying to do. You're trying to make your reads faster, your rights faster, then you might sway it in one direction over the other, right? Because really what you're doing is what outlaw said earlier is, when you say, hey, I need to get three reads back to say it's okay, you actually have to wait for your client in aggregate to get three okays back before it'll say it's okay. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's going to say, hey, I failed. You know, Now your application has to do something else. Yeah. Or maybe sloppy reads are like, you know, there was actually a term for like um, later, I think we're going to get to where it were, was referred to as sloppy quorums. And there was another strategy called hinted handoff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, the trick to mitigating stale data, like we mentioned here, is that you read from multiple. And the replicas keep a version number of the data. So uh, there's a couple of different ways to get that number. But basically, that you can think of it as like a version number. So you like you get the data back, and it says, uh, Michael Outlaw's customer record, this is version 11. And you look at the data from another replica, and oh, it's Michael Outlaw version 12. 
well, I, now I know I should go with the 12 since that one's been updated and this note that gave me the 11th uh, obviously hasn't been synced to yet. So I should go with the most recent data and move on. Yeah, so that's super important what he just said. That's where that equation came into play, right? So if if you wrote a certain number of nodes and you're reading from a certain number of nodes and that readers plus writers is greater than the total number of nodes and you've got overlap between what's being read and what was written to. So you might get some stale data from a couple of those nodes, but you're going to at least get the newest data from one of the nodes. And so when the client compares that, it's going to say, okay, I got version 12. I'm going to toss out version 11. And then that's what your application uses. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We just came up with a system or, you know, other people came up with a system where you can get the latest copy of data without having to worry about any sort of leaders. And so each node is kind of, uh, is independent and it's heavily, it's very fault tolerant and available because some number of nodes can go down and you can still get your data and you're still getting back the most recent copy of the data. Like that's pretty good. It's not perfect. It's not a hundred percent, but it's pretty dang close and it works out really well for most app for most applications. Hey, I just thought of something though. Like in our example that we gave, wouldn't that be backwards? Cause we had said that like, if you wanted to put the emphasis on the reads that you might have, like, you know, you would read out of, nine but you'd only write to three but really you wanted no no the freshest not not speed if you wanted the most up to date always you'd have more readers because then you're guaranteed to read from nodes that had the rights on them if you want performance you do less readers so you get less latency but that's at the cost of staleness yeah so that example i would say you want faster writes than you want reads so you care more about writing that. And if you want faster reads and that at the cost of slower writes, then you would go with nine writers and three readers. Cause you remember you're going to end up with the, the slowest connection basically is going to be your bottleneck there. Well, I so guess where be- I was going with that is that in my example that I gave where I was saying like, you know, you're going to, your application is going to do 98% reads, then you wouldn't want your read count to be higher than your write count. Because in that scenario, um, yeah. You know, you, you're trying to emphasize your reads because it's their 98% of your use case. So you want your reads to be fast and lower latency, but you're willing to take the hit on the rights. So your rights would be the nine and your reads would be the three in those same numbers. Unless you care about making sure that you have the newest data and then nope, you'll that would still be the thing that would still that because your rights or because you're writing, if you were, if the numbers are nine oh, and three, I'm with you. You, I'm with you. Nine plus three would still be greater than whatever your notes were. You'd you're still right. get the same guarantee, but now you're, you, it's exactly what you said a moment ago about the fewer nodes. So you'd have That's the lower right. latency. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like a race. Cause remember you still read from all of them. You just say like, take the, take the, whenever I get that quorum number, for the then reads, like done. that's where I can say done. So if I right. said, um, if we said we've got 11 nodes, and I say, uh, you know what? Write to all 11 and don't consider that write written until you get a, uh, you know, uh, okay from all 11. Uh, then, you know, there's problems with that, of course, but you can have one reader. And so you can say, read from all and whatever one's the fastest, that's why I return, which is a nice right. read experience. It's like the Stack Overflow type setup, right? Like they don't get that many new questions and answers every day, but they got people just slamming them all day trying to read their stuff, right? Right. Th- that That's a good, I think, use, even though I know they use SQL Server for that kind of stuff, but, you know. But, I mean, I like, uh, I mean, this, you know, people are going to be like, oh my God, you're so stupid. Um, because, you know, prior to reading this book, 
Like I didn't realize that's how some of these systems worked that you were going to read from like, you know, a bunch of nodes or write to a bunch of nodes. Right. And you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm going I'm to blast this out to, you know, I'm going to multicast this out. Maybe that's how it works. I don't know. I'm, but you know, I'm going to blast out this, this right to all hundred nodes. And if 25 of them say that they did it good, that's good enough for me, you know, or whatever your numbers might be. Right. Yeah. yeah that, that's really I chatty. never would. Then, I mean, you think about, you think about something like that and then you think about all the different, um, you know, web services that are out there for like just storage, for example, like, I mean, I'm not saying that this is how they're doing the storage behind the scenes, but you know, I mean, sure they have similar kind of problems. So, I mean, it's been this, you know, we've, we can't rave enough about this book because uh, it, it really has been an eye opener for me to like, think about some of these problems in that I don't get to work on in my day job, you know, that, uh, that I might not have thought about otherwise. So I guess this would be a good opportunity to say, uh, if you haven't read this book and you would like a copy of this book, you need to leave a comment on this episode. You can find it at www.codingblocks.net slash episode 162. Or in your podcast player, there'll be a link in there that you can click and it'll take you there. You know, but oh, not yeah. tangent, well, most first of tangent of the night. Here we go. Here we yeah, go. Here we go. The latest uh, Apple podcast player. You don't see that anymore. Have you I, have you seen that? I heard that there's they they did something and there's a way to get around it. I don't remember what it is, but in we're the podcast have to look player it. you can get around it, or as a publisher you can get around as it. As the person who publishes it, there's a way to get around it. Not oh, I have remember. a feeling I know how to do it as a publisher, but it would be dirty. Yeah, I don't remember. I want to say it had something to do with the fact that there's href tags and they're not parsing them properly. Like I don't remember what it was. Um, we need to look into that though. Cause we try to make it easy for, for people to, to be able to go to this stuff. Okay. From so I, I'm just going to say, cause I know that there's a lot of other like uh, people that listen to the show that also a uh, podcast. I mean, uh, we talked about, um, uh, Jamie Taylor and all of his, uh, various things last episode. Uh, I think, I think he like has like 18 different podcasts or something. It's insane. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I exaggerate a little, but it was like 16 or 17. Um, in our podcast hosting provider, they actually have a separate section for iTunes now. And what I suspect is happening is because the thing that we're putting in there is just like a blurb instead of like the whole show notes. That's why that's what Apple is taking. I suspect. Um, but it's weird because Apple used to be get used to get it directly from our feed. So yeah, whatever. Yeah. We'll look. And that's behind the scenes in coding blocks. And uh, yeah, now we bring you back to our, our regularly scheduled program, how to keep right. your data in sync. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked about how you write to many and then you read from many. And when you read, you take the latest. Well, what about that data that is old? So as the client, you know that you just got old data back from nodes one, three, and four. Uh, one strategy for keeping this data in sync is to have the client go update one, three, and four and say, Hey, I got something newer from, uh, you know, two, five, and seven, whatever. Uh, so you should, you should get this data if you don't already have it by the time you get this. Now, isn't that just flipping the problem on its head about like how you would do repl- Like when I read that part, I was like, I mean, well, yeah, sure, sure. You could do that. That's like totally like, makes sense. Yeah, I guess I I wouldn't have have, thought that that's how it was done. But yeah, I, now that I read it, I can't unread it. 
Yep. So that's one strategy here. And you can, you can have your database only do this. They call it read repair. And the idea is whenever that data is read and only when that data is read, you can have the client say, Oh, hey, there's a mismatch. But because of this quorum, I know that at least one of these has the most recent data. And now I'm going to fix the rest of you. And, and they did call out specifically though that in this type of situation, depending on <clears throat> how often your data is read or that particular piece of data might be read, you could technically have stale data that lives out on your nodes for a very long time. Right. So if you never read that, that old data from a client app, then it doesn't know that it's old on those other replicas. So it never gets updated. So it's or, an interesting problem. Or worse, the newer systems that have the updated data, the, that old data is never read. The new systems that have the newer version, something they die, they you know, they crash and burn, whatever, something happens to them. I guess the data just doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. You, you're stuck with the old data now. Oh um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's all it's weird, right? But the idea is that uh, eventually over a long span of time, the data will be consistent, but they don't say eventually five minutes, eventually one hour down at DynamoDB is almost 10 years old. Now there could be data out there <laughs> that has never been read and never been fixed up. Uh, maybe, maybe they might do something else implementing details, but it's just kind of crazy to think like that's a valid strategy. It really, it really goes back to, you know, knowing your data and your use cases in that if you are going to go with a system that uses read repair as the strategy, then it's, it works for you because you know, it's a high read situation. And so it's likely to be corrected by the client, but right. if it's for archival purposes, and you're looking at using a system that uses read repair, you need to rethink your strategy. It was kind of my takeaway from it. Like that, that, the, you know, archival type use cases would not be where you would want to use read repair. If you're doing like a backup or a data dump, then you're probably not doing a read in the traditional sense that a client would do. You know, it's maybe you're just copying files on disk or something like that would be a case where you could really miss some data. Well, I want to be careful with the choice of words there because when I was talking about archival purposes, I didn't mean like you were taking a backup of the database. I just meant like, you know, you, you were you were going to. I'm trying to think of an example here. Wayback uh, machine, you're storing data for the long term. Org. Say what right. now? Archive.org or the Wayback Machine for the web. Um. Yeah, but I mean, maybe like, let's picture. Um, I don't know. The the thing that came to mind was like portions of your resume. Like if you had your resume is like portions that were in, um, you know, each a separate document or row in a database, right? Like stuff that you did from 10 years ago, isn't going to get, uh, written often, right. Or, or maybe not even get read often. Cause like, who's going to go that far back. Right. And so if you did go back and say, Oh, you know what? I just remembered some project that I worked on from 10 years ago, I'm going to go add that to the project, but if it, if it's on a separate, you know, if it's literally like a separate row and, you know, cause you know, a reader of that isn't going to get to it until they got to like the eighth page of your resume, cause your resume is way too verbose. Then, uh, you know, in this kind of system, right? Like that isn't going to be highly read. So therefore it might not get, um, I mean, I'm not trying to say that your resume wouldn't be it, extremely exciting that probably came across as rude and I apologize. Uh, not you, but your friend's resume. Then. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I wasn't even talking about your friend. I was talking. <laughs> no, respect, respect. I get it. Yeah. 
some guy that you saw at the coffee, you know, right. at Starbucks, yeah. that guy's yeah. resume is probably not going to get read that often. Uh, uh, at least not the eighth page of it. So, so there is a solution to this though, right? Like instead of having this read thing that has to go update these things as it gets it, there's this other thing called anti-entropy, <laughs> which basically is just a background task that will go try and sync that data up with the other replicas, which sounds very similar to what the, um, you know, single and multi-liter replication stuff would do too. You know, I mean, it's kind of what you just always imagine, or at least I always imagined like this was already a thing. Like, why is it got to have such a negative name about it? Why is it anti anything? No, come on. This is yeah. the way this is the Mandalorian. And the other thing is the anti way. Cause the other things just weird, but I mean, it works. Yeah. It, it, and I, yeah, I'm a little upset that somebody ticked off the next one because the database that should not be named mm-hmm. only uses read repair, which is interesting. So Voldemort, it, they, Voldemort they only use, right? yeah, <laughs> it's going to show up, <laughs> the um, but that's pretty interesting that they, like, they were just like, no, we're not doing this background testing. Well, I mean, you know, I, I joke about the anti entropy, but, uh, in reading about it, like that actually sounds a lot more complicated. The read repair sounds, you know, much easier. Like you, if you're going to read from whatever your R is configured to, you know, let's go back to our five node example. So R and W are both three. You're going to read from the three nodes. And if any one of those needs to be updated or two of those need to be updated, then fine. You, you know, no big deal. Trying to figure out these things that like where there's not a relational kind of thing about them. You know, because we're not talking about relational databases here, right? Which adds to the complexity of, because like, I'm so used to thinking in a relational database kind of way that, that when you take that away from it, then this auto entropy makes it sound like it'd be way more complicated to find what are the new pieces and is it new because it changed or is it new because it was deleted and it has a tombstone marker? Like, you know, and, and not to mention, like you said, the ordering for the, are the anti-entropy is not guaranteed at all. So you can imagine a strategy where it's just like, uh, all the leaders are constantly just querying each other, like normal clients. So, Hey, um, go fish, you know, like, have you, do you have a, do you have record, uh, one, two, two. Okay, cool. I got it. Okay. You got it. All right, whatever next, you know? So it's, I don't know. I like the idea of like these kind of nodes, just like sitting around lazily talking to each other. I mean, you know, of course, like random is one way to do it. You could also go like very precisely and vet the whole database depending on, on what you want. But I just kind of like the, the idea of like these nodes sit around playing good. Go, go talking about the weather. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, like as you were describing that, it kind of reminded me of the all to all drawing where like every node yeah. was talking to every node, you know? Yeah, but you got to schedule that. You got to make sure it's not too chatty. So it's definitely more complicated and no doubt about it. And the, the reader pair just sounds so cool that you should probably just go with that. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. All right. So we, we're kind of, we're going to jump over a few of the things that we had in the notes here because we already talked about a lot of it. So the quorums <laughs> of the reading and the writing. Um, the one thing I do want to touch back on though, is what we mentioned is that a common way for doing this leaders leaderless thing is to make sure that your number of writers plus your number of readers is greater than the number of nodes. And then that will ensure that you get fresh data back and that you're also writing in a way that is fault tolerant. Um, now the interesting thing here is, and, and Joe pointed this out in the notes is let's say that you have 10 nodes and you have five readers and five writers. 
it's very possible that because you don't have overlap, you're not greater than the number of nodes. You could have written to nodes one through five, but then when you went to read, you read from node six through 10. Yeah. And so you get old data. That's why I was calling out earlier that it's specific that it not be greater than or equal. It has to be greater than. Greater than. But I do right. want to clarify one bit of terminology with like, it's not the number of writers or readers because that makes it sound like it's a tasks oh. off on some yeah. other service. It's the number of successful writes Confirm. or the number of yeah. successful reads or confirmed, you know, whatever your choice word, like, you know, it, it's meaning, meaning. And the reason why I want to call that out is because when you say like a writer or reader, it makes it sound like it's some other service on some job in the data center. But really this is on the client. The client yeah. is making this determination of, I got enough rights, successful confirmed or successful rights. And I got enough uh, successful reads that I can move on. You know what I like is um if you would explain this to a DBA like ten years ago like you know the way we're talking about now and said so, yeah, what you do is you send to every node and then you read from every node it's great they they would have had a hard attack right there because like it's terribly inefficient and it is but the deal is you get to scale out so this yeah. is not something you would ever do with a single node this uh, is something that only makes sense for larger scale type things I mean I think we've joked about this in the past too but um or and if we haven't then uh, hey new to you um. You remember, you remember like go back 20 years, you know, or tw- or more 25 years. You remember like how setting up SSL on your, your server, like that was a big deal. You only flipped to HTTPS when you very specifically <clears throat> needed to do something like authentication. And then you immediately came back because the, the burden on the server to encrypt the traffic for, the number of concurrent requests was just too great. So it's like, Hey, if you don't need to be encrypted, then get out of there. Right. And so to your point about going back, uh, you know, 10 or more years to talk to a DBA and be like, Hey, check this idea out. What I'm going to do. So I'm going to write to all of them. Right. Like, you know, of course, cause of course they would flip because, you know, I mean, we've just gotten, Fortunately, like as things have progressed in time, right? Like processing has gotten better. Network speeds have gotten better. Latencies have gotten lower. So we can start to take advantage of some of that, you know, and maybe that's why like things from the seventies were like, now I get it. Now I can, now I can actually implement it. Who got it? Jeff Bezos heard this and he's like, wait a minute, we got a database system here where you write all hundred percent of the data over and over and again to every computer Every time, and you every time you read, it, you get all the data. And if we charge people by the storage, by the compute, and by the network traffic, they'll None. they'll just pay it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they and they never actually remove <clears throat> any of the test stuff that they had out there. Yeah. Beautiful. And this stuff can they don't even have to query it to fix it. They can be just like chatting in the background and just passing data back and forth all day long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's do None. this. And okay, that's how you got of- AWS. Speaking of uh, those who shall not be named, since you named him, because <laughs> you know he kind of looks like doesn't he? Kind of look like you see some oh, of the pictures. He kind he kind of looks like him, right? Have you seen? So there was the story about he's he's <clears throat> going uh, to be one of the first to ride in uh, one of the you know space um, SpaceX uh, trips where he's not uh, you know an astronaut. There's a petition. I don't know if you've seen this. To not allow him re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, 
It's got over 120,000 signatures to not Uh, allow him to re-enter. That's amazing. (laughs) It's so funny. Like, it's just, it's mean. It's cruel. But it's also a little funny. (laughs) If you rearrange the the letters of the person who created that petition, it actually spells his his ex-wife's name. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. (laughs) I've seen that. Like, Tom Riddle, Voldemort. Yeah. Sorry. What what are are those called where you can, like, rename it? Not an anagram. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's not true. All right, so so back onto the serious stuff. One of the, <laughs> one of the one of the cool things that you get if you do this reads plus writes is greater than the nodes. If you take the number of nodes and you divide it by <clears> two <throat> and then round down. So if you had nine nodes, you divide by two, you got four and a half. Just round it down to four. That's the number of failed nodes you can tolerate in that situation, and still be able to do your writes and your reads. So that's pretty nice. And just having that simple equation makes it to where you kind of know, you know, how available your system can be. And uh, we mentioned about how you could uh, kind of tweak those numbers for your workload to make uh, what makes sense. But kind of the standard general advice is if you don't have a special reason, uh, just go about half. So take those nodes, add one, divide by two. There you go. There's your uh, R and N or R and W rather readers and writes for the quorum. Successful reads and writes. I wonder and, though, uh, like what would be realistically like take an amazon.com for example, you know, if they were on a system like this, for example, then how many would they have? Right. Because thousands? you know, you think of an amazon.com, right? Yeah. You would have to be a lot. Right. And so <laughs> What would you do for your number of reads and writes there? If you had a thousand and you're like, okay, you need to have back uh, 5,001 successful reads or 5,001 successful writes, like everybody's home internet connection would be just saturated with read and write requests to Amazon. Even if, you know, you really weren't doing much to, to shop from Amazon at that time, right? Like, so, <clears throat> you know, obviously it points out that like, at least in my mind that you're not going to have obscene numbers of, no. of these things. Right. Yeah. And, um, so I just looked, obscene. uh, so I just went and looked, um, the, uh, it looks like the most you can have, uh, for a standard AWS account without making a phone call, uh, is 50 per region, 50 nodes and dynamo. So that gives so, you so kind wait of an idea. Minute. Wait a minute. Hold up. That's a great call out. I'm so glad this was said too. The Dynamo that we were talking about before is not the Dynamo that Amazon makes publicly available through AWS. That's where the author called it out. Is like it's very confusing that Dynamo, and when we say that uh, that system that shall not be named and Reoc and um, what was the other one? Uh, 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 Not Cassandra. Cassandra. Oh, it was Cassandra. Um, That that their Dynamo's Dynamo like that's referring to an in-house system that Amazon has that they don't make publicly available, but mm. to confuse things as an AWS service, they have a completely different system called Dynamo DB, which is leader based. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I miss that. Yeah. It's good that we're not confused. <laughs> and right? uh, if we, if we ever uh, finish this chapter on replication, the next one is on partitioning, <laughs> which starts getting into splitting up your data. So it's smaller and can fit across multiple nodes. And uh, yeah, so like once you kind of bring that into play, like 
the numbers start getting really big and yeah, you can spread things out a little bit better. But remember, we're still focused on just whole data per replica or node per machine. Well, virtual machine. Anyway, it's so hard to talk about this stuff accurately. It is. Wait, we were supposed uh, to talk yeah. about things accurately? Yeah. <laughs> I got to go back and reread. Hold on. I'll be back. We're supposed to. Supposed to. So, uh, you know, everything we talked about, we mentioned that there, there's ways for things to go wrong. The author explicitly lists five edge cases and uh, kind of a category, which <laughs> the category of one of those five is basically like, and there's a bunch more we're not going to go into details of. And so when I wrote the notes, I kind of figured like, you know what? <laughs> this is a complicated uh, topic. I think it's, you You can imagine cases where things go wrong. You know, nodes coming down, coming up as you're going along. New uh, nodes coming up as you're querying. Just, uh, you can imagine all sorts of things. And uh, yeah. Or reads so happening the as the writes are happening. Like, the, yeah, there's, there's so many different things. Like, we, we didn't want to go into crazy detail on them. Yeah. And what if you you can't get a quorum? You say you write and you say, I need at least three to accept this, uh, this right. And you don't get it after two minutes. You just got two sitting out there. What do you do? Do you right. try to walk that back? Do you just go with it? Like, well, you know, what do you do? Do you? Yeah. So, and, and all of that gets into really specific implementation details. There's things that databases have to decide what to do with that. And so we start getting out of general rules we can talk about like we haven't so far. And so we're just going to skip it. It goes into like five plus or minus 30 the things that can go wrong. <laughs> plus or minus 30? 30, yeah. Exactly. About, about. Yeah. yeah. At least we got a range. I mean, within a it few standard deviations. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Here's uh, a laundry list of no problems that might happen. And, uh, you know, you're guaranteed to get one of them. Yo, here's a good question. Uh, how do you know how stale your data is? So, you know, we talked about if you've got, uh, you know, this reader fix, fix them up strategy. I forget what it was called already. Read uh, repair. Read repair. <laughs> fix them up's good. Yeah. I like <laughs> that one better, honestly. <laughs> fix them up. Fix them up strategy. Then you uh, can imagine, you know, having a Prometheus or a dashboard or something that kind of keeps track of how far your leaders are. Because, like, that's the question you wouldn't want to know. It's like, I've got uh, 11 nodes here. How are we doing? How similar are they? How different are they? Well, that's a really hard question to answer, especially if you're doing that uh, reader repair strategy, because you don't really know that there's a problem until you see one. Yeah. I mean, they they talked about the fact that in the single leader or even in the multi-leader replication, there's this ordering. So you know that if you did write number 10 on your leader, then if if your replica over here is on write number seven, they're three behind, right? Like that's yep. easy to do. In this leaderless world, I don't know, like Joe said, I mean, maybe it'll never be updated because it's never going to get read again. So, yeah. Or yeah, even I, if it is read again, there there's no guarantee that the writes happen in the same order. So you can't, yeah, just, really you can't just look at the write-ahead log to be like, oh, this right. is where you're supposed to be and you're not, so you're this far behind and done. Yeah, yep. they did say that there was an algorithm that somebody's come up with. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they said – the worst part is right now, at least in the leaderless world, it doesn't seem to be a priority to expose those types of metrics, right? So it's kind of on you to come up with your own way to make this happen, which is a little unfortunate. Well, the way I remembered that was a little bit different, which it was that was act, there was research in that area, but there wasn't an answer. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think they said it was reasonable, right? Like it it would give you a guesstimate, like a a decent guesstimate, but it's not implemented on most of the systems. 
Yeah, so the the paper that the the book referenced uh, referred to PBS or probabilistic bounded staleness, which is almost what it sounds like. Is basically what they do is they do random sampling and they figure out how good the samples are. It's almost like sampling animal populations. So they go out for an hour and they say, okay, we counted twenty deer, so multiply by the number of miles in the state, and hey, we got two uh, twenty twenty thousand deer in the state. And so, like, that's, you know, the kind of uh, sampling that's done for animal populations. And that's kind of what they're doing here is they basically take those random samples, extrapolate, and say, hey, pretty good or pretty bad. And uh, it's not great. And uh, from what I can tell, most of the NoSQLs or most of the databases that we're talking about don't really implement that. Uh, Just like we mentioned, it's still kind of – it's not experimental, but it's just not widely used. But one thing that is widely used that I don't think I put in the notes is that one thing you could do is just keep a total counter of writes – Per replica, and then I could say, "Hey, replica number one, how many you got? Uh, one thousand thirteen. All right, you number two, how much you got? Thousand fifteen. Like, well, they're about two off. I don't know which two, but we're about two off. <laughs> so we have a pretty point, good. Oh, we have a point two percent variance on this thing. Yeah, it's pretty good. Now, if you were to you know ask again a second later, it could be wildly different." <laughs> You know, uh, it depends on how much variation, you know, or how much data you had coming in. It's kind of funny, but yeah, it's an interesting problem. I wonder though, in that scenario that you described, I mean, yeah, that works fine if all nodes are created equal at the same time from the start. But if you have say three nodes already running and you're like, you know what? I want to bring two more on. Then do they start doing writes from the beginning of time, or do they just take a snapshot of what was already on one of the others and start and start from there? And then in which case they're going to get, does that count as the first write? Does that count as write one? Or do you like not count that one? And then the first write that they actually get is count one. And so they're going to look like they're thousands behind. You know, it didn't, the book didn't right? go into uh, that strategy. So I would assume it's kind of like leaders, which is what he said. Basically, takes a snapshot, and once it gets far enough along, you can say, okay, you're ready to come in now. But how do you know if it's far enough along to put in? Right. Like, that's the, the what we're talking about. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Educative.io offers hands-on courses with live developer environments, all within a browser-based environment with no setup required. With Educative.io, you can learn faster using their text-based courses instead of videos. Focus on the parts you're interested in and skim through the parts you're not. So I, uh, I have a confession. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of TypeScript lately, uh, and that's technically TypeScript because I've got the TS extension, but I've basically just been doing JavaScript because it, it kind of works for the most part. <laughs> and uh, I've been ignoring all the really cool things that TypeScript has to offer. And we're bringing this language in for a reason, right? Because it's great. So I went and looked on uh, Educative, and they have a whole path dedicated to TypeScript and uh, a total of seven um, seven courses that deal with it. So I, I started one, and I'm already learning. And what's really nice is because I know JavaScript pretty well, I'm able to scroll through really fast through the things I know. So I skipped the chapters on var and constant and jumped down into things I didn't know, which the first thing I smacked into was declare, which I had no clue. Do you know what declare does in TypeScript? No. You should take this course. Uh, <laughs> what was really nice is uh, so they tease. had happy path stuff where you can run. You know, we, we mentioned these little playgrounds where you can kind of code around and like answer. Um, you know, try to solve the problems they give you. But what's really cool too is they also had some um, 
non-happy path situations where like, hey, try to run this code. You do it and it breaks and gives you an error message. And then they go on to explain why that error, why that might be counterintuitive. So it's just a really great way to learn. And like I said, it was so nice to skip over the things that I don't need to learn because this is something that's so familiar. So it's, it's been really painful for me to try and watch a video on TypeScript, for example, because I feel like I know so much of it that I'm tuned out by the time I get to the parts that I don't. So that's been really nice. Yeah. I mean, that, that the, the learning environment that educated.io sets up for you is uh very easy to for you to be able to tailor the experience to what you want by allowing you to just easily skim through you know the the whole blocks of of you know text you're like nope don't need to even read that i can just move on and play in the playground that i want and you know in the um in the the sponsor tease i had mentioned you know like hey if you're using uh you could use educative.io as like part of your interview prep yeah you know preparation interview prep preparation that too many preps um and they have a new a new course called decode the coding interview so you can stop grinding through endless practice questions and get straight to real world examples and uh you know all within your your uh, your browser there, no need to switch to your IDE or download some SDK or install some special package or whatever. Educative has the combined, uh, you know, has combed through the most commonly asked interview questions at top tech companies and has crafted a set of scenarios for you to learn from. And the courses are available in Python, Java, C++, and JavaScript. I mean, w- that sounds perfect, right? For interview prep. Like that's exactly what you want is somebody else has already done the hard work to come up with like, here's the questions you're likely going to get asked. Oh, and I forgot to say too, uh, they, they've also introduced the, uh, you know, there's the, the, their selling uh, grokking the interview prep series as well. It has system, uh, courses like grokking the system design interview and grokking the coding interview. Well, now tell us about the new one, Jay-Z. Yep, uh, newest one, uh, Grokking Machine Learning Interview focuses on the system design side of machine learning. Have you heard about, um, oh, I forgot, I already forgot, ML Ops is what the word I was looking for. Um, machine learning operations. So that, like the actual implication of these systems, because it's really tough, especially as you get things get big. And this, uh, of course, is designed all around really getting to the heart of that. And uh, you'll actually go through um, real world systems, such as the ad prediction system. It's the only course of its kind on the internet. Yeah, so go ahead and visit educative.io slash coding blocks to get an additional 10% off an educative unlimited annual subscription. You'll have unlimited access to their entire course catalog, but go ahead and hurry because they don't run these deals very often. That's educative.io slash coding blocks to start your subscription today. All right, everybody, it's that time of the show where we pause to ask you. If you wouldn't mind. Why did you get like your deep, serious, like, <laughs> hey, baby. That's right. Why, <laughs> did you notice like how intimate all of a sudden so, he got with the. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm asking for an intimate thing here. It got weird. I'm asking for an intimate thing here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll put stop. on the soft voice. I'll the stop. NPR voice. Yeah. That's right. Echoes. So if you haven't had a chance yet and you would like to give back to the show, please do. Consider leaving us a review by going to codingblocks.net slash review. We have a couple of links there that will help you get to a good place to write one of these said reviews. And as always, we appreciate them. They put smiles on our faces. 
And yes, we, we love it when we get those. Thank you. And yeah. uh, back to our regularly scheduled programming. I, I can't unhear it, man. It's like, <laughs> I feel like like you should be like a nighttime uh, radio uh, DJ from like the 70s or something. <laughs> You're listening to the sweet, smooth sounds of WJZZ. You missed your calling. <laughs> uh, hey don't think i can't do this i might switch careers yeah I, you probably should man i think we found your calling i think we did i got the base i got the base yeah the right base. so i'm sure i can make that happen i just gotta smoke a few cigarettes and then i then then i'll have that raspy bass <laughs> right, that's what that's what good. we wanted to hear you're right. listening to the sound of <laughs> you're not you're not gonna like the salary though <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. With that kind of voice, maybe. That's right. Mike Wisnowski, I need to submit your paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> All the parents just got that reference. Yes. All right. So uh, what about, uh, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. A few episodes back, we asked, do you want to run your own business? And your choices were, heck yeah, Shark Tank, here I come. Or, I don't know, that sounds like a lot of work. Or, I already do, and the boss is a real jerk. So this is, what, 62? So, Jay-Z, you are up. Oh, boy. Okay. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't know. It sounds like a lot of work at 34%. Mm, stole my pick. Yes. I'm going to go with, I don't know. That sounds like a lot of work. 35%. Oh, <laughs> that's dirty. That's dirty. Oh, it's fun now. Ooh. I hope we both lose. There's going to be some fighting. Like, we're going to play Call of Duty later and somebody's going to get sniped. And that's right. we're going to turn on friendly fire and it's going to get ugly. Um, <clears throat> okay. So Joe says, I don't know. It sounds like a lot of work for 34%. And Alan says, I don't know. It sounds like a little bit more work for 35%. (laughs) And the winner is neither. Oh, come on. Yeah. Okay. Heck yeah. Shark tank. Here I come. All right. Hey, congrats. 34%. I yeah, like it. Right. We were being Debbie Downers here. Yeah, and, you were. Yeah, yeah you yeah. were. I like it. Uh, so if you want to complain to Alan and Joe, you can find them on Slack. Um, <laughs> you'll never guess Joe's name because it changes constantly. That is and, great. Uh, <laughs> um, now, we're easy to find on Slack. We're just at our name. Uh, at Alan, at Joe, at Michael. Uh, yeah, so you can complain to them and be like, hey, um... Why, why would you think that we wouldn't be optimistic and want to like, you know, work for ourselves? Now that said, uh, you guys weren't far off because I don't know. That sounds like a lot of work was 42% of the vote. Oh, so uh, it was okay. real close. Yeah, it was. What okay. was the, uh, heck yeah. What was its percent? Uh, 44. I thought I said that. Did I not? It was 44. 44 so 2%. Okay. Yeah. I still like it. I like the positivity. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it just really says like a lot of uh, go-getters that we have. Um, and, and I was really surprised too, though, because I know like from like Slack conversations and, you know, the uh, virtual meetups that we've done and whatnot, like there are several listeners that uh, do work for themselves. So I was actually surprised that that wasn't more of the vote than... Uh, they were too busy to take the survey. Probably. That, <laughs> that checks out. Yeah. Right. Their boss wouldn't give them the time off to do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so um, for today's survey, uh, we thought we'd ask, because, you know, there's this interesting story that came out. Uh, you know, TikTok has always been, uh, you know, there's been some controversy about it since its inception. It seems like maybe that's just, you know, from the, the news sources that I read or listen to. And there was a new one that came out about TikTok and uh, collecting biometric data. So it made us question like, hmm, do you have TikTok installed? And your choices are, heck yeah, I love those videos. Or nope, no way, never. That's it. Pretty simple. I think I'm going to be upset by the answers on this one. I mean, it's wildly popular. So, um, you know, I don't want to like, you know. Ain't the jury pool there, but uh, I think the cards are stacked against you. A little bit popular. Hey, what is it with every iOS app now? Like, hey, can this app access all your other data for all your other apps on your phone? I'm like, it's a, what this app does nothing. Why? Why would it need access to everything else on my phone? Like, well, that's because Apple, with the latest iOS, they started exposing those things to make the users more aware. Right? I know. It's ridiculous, man. I, I don't like phones. <laughs> I'm going to get me a flip phone back. I think right. so. Well, I mean, they got s- smart flip phones, so you know, you get one of those. I want a dumb flip phone. <laughs> flip phone. But I don't install mobile apps anymore. I just use websites, so they have to buy that crap from Google. I do the same thing. I, I seriously do. I I try to avoid installing apps if I can. I feel like the that. average user, uh, phone user, installs zero apps per month. Really? Yeah. Well, I'd imagine the the first month you get the phone, you install like a thousand, and then after that, you're like, "Well, I can't even find the ones I have." So, yeah. Oh man, what was the name of this phone? It's going it's going to kill me now. Because there was like these commercials that you would see on like some of the news stations, like uh, it was a, where it was a service. Never mind. I I can't remember. It it was basically like. A ser- it was a <clears throat> a cellular service for um kind of catering towards like older the older generation where where you know like uh I don't know I'm just gonna make up a name like go call or something like that you know and it would be like they would just give you a flip phone and here you go like you never saw that any of those commercials on like seems like all the news stations would have them in the middle of the day. No. But I, I feel like that's where Alan's going to end up pretty soon. Uh, like, I'm not far <clears throat> off. Like he, Alan would be the type of person to move into like one of those 55 and up type neighborhoods that take <laughs> care of like all the yard and everything. Like Alan would be the type of person to move into it way sooner than he needed to just because he's like, no, this sounds like luxury. I don't have to take care of the lawn. <laughs> you get my trash for me. No. Oh, yeah. Let's man. do that. Hey, you're making me sound lazy. I, I don't mind paying my <laughs> guy to cut the grass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you don't mind to pay him. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I work to make that money and then I'm going to pay him. So I, I don't mean, have to do it. You I know? didn't say that you didn't have to pay for it in those communities. I mean, just, uh, you know, decided for you. 
All right. Well, uh, <clears throat> now back to our regularly scheduled program and when things don't work and we continue with Joe. All right. <laughs> so uh, when things don't right. Uh, so, well, you know, what happens if you tried to do a write and uh, you don't have enough notes for quorums? You know, we mentioned earlier, it's kind of a, up to the databases to depend to decide what to do with it based on what they're trying to do. Uh, so what do you do is it basically you return an error if you get a canker quorum or you take it, right? Those are your only two options. You say, no, back it out or we'll take it and figure it out. I don't know. Come back later. <laughs> And if we choose to go on operating and we've cho chosen to say we require a quorum, we didn't get it, but we kept it anyway. That's what we call a sloppy quorum because it didn't meet our minimum and we did it anyway. You know, what was interesting here, too, is they brought in this term that, I, that they didn't mention anywhere else. And, and they kind of snuck it in and they were saying, even even if you didn't meet the the total number, Maybe it wrote to nodes that weren't the home nodes. And and I didn't like that was the first time that they mentioned in the entire section, which means that maybe there's like these primary nodes that you have and maybe some secondary. I don't know. But then they likened it to, hey, what if you get locked out of your house? You might go over and knock on your neighbor's door and be like, yo, can I can I crash on your on your couch? And they'll be like, yeah, but as soon as, as, soon as your house gets unlocked, you're out of here. So they brought this up, and like I said, they didn't really mention it anywhere else. So I don't know where that came from, but they also wrapped that in there with the sloppy quorum. Yeah, I, I totally missed that. For like home, I've been doing some Googling here. Yeah, it, it, it was odd, but you know, whatever. Um, no, oh, that was in the gray box. Don't don't read the gray boxes. You got to read the gray boxes. That's where all the <laughs> that's where all the good stuff. That's where the tofu is. Um, <laughs> but so there was another thing that they said about this. It was interesting. Is you can by doing this mm -hmm. by allowing things to write to I guess non standard nodes. This increases your availability, right? Meaning that that you're not going to get blocked from writing because some of the standard nodes are not available, but it does come at the cost of consistency because if for some reason your standard node goes down and these other ones, these temporary ones don't ever get, you know, updated back across, then you lose that data, right? You'll never come back up to a consistent data state. Yep. So what about concurrent writes? So, you know, we mentioned uh, this leader list. So what happens if we have two different clients trying to write uh, the same exact data with two different values? So we mentioned uh, the version number, like kind of logical Cox thing. Basically, uh, if the client can tell us the version that they're trying to write because they just read version 16 and now they're writing uh, an update to it. So here you go. This will be your new 17. That's one way that the the lead, uh, nose can detect that there's a problem because, hey, I got 17 and you've got 17 and the values are different. Um, sounds kind of unlikely, but depending on your use case, you know, different kind of applications could be a, a bigger problem or not. But it, it does happen and it's something that you have to make a decision about. These databases can't just leave that unhandled. They have to pick something to do about it. And there's a couple strategies and we're going to... I don't know that that like <clears throat> uh, maybe we're going to get to this part though. Cause um, there was a thing that we haven't 
discussed yet, which was the um, I always messed up this acronym conflict free. I think it was called con conf that it's in here. Me say it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll stop. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there very soon, actually. Uh, so, oh yeah, bef- before we get there, maybe we deleted the acronym, but the section is coming up. Um, but the first strategy that we, uh, talked about and well, but before first just to address the, your concern there is basically there is a way to kind of chain, uh, things together that are, are dependent. And so well, it's not completely solveless. I guess where I was going with this is <clears throat> when I was reading this portion of the book, imagine, and again, because like relational databases are just so ingrained in my head as when I think about data and everything. So as I was reading this portion of the book, I was like, imagine if you were to <clears throat> work with your, your, your data team and you were say, okay, for every time I read a row from this, this s- database, you're going to return back the row version number to me. And I'm always going to like, re- you know, if I go to write, if I go to, you know, do an update, I'm going to say like, Hey, here's the up, here's the, um, what the row version that I know of for that thing, you know, and, and maybe like I'm always as a client, I'm always aware of what that version number was. So in this example you gave was the, the, you talked about the logical clock, right? And we're the point I was trying to make is that, um, there are data structures in some of these systems that are meant for dealing with these like type of conflict, uh, resolution problems. They're like specific data types. I think, uh, it was react specifically that was called out as having, um, it was the acronym was C C S R D T C R D T. Yeah. But it stood for conflict free replicated data types. If I recall, and, yep. and so that, yeah. And I guess like that data type, you know, would have these kind of things in it automatically so that you as a client don't know. Right. In order uh, to handle yes. that type of thing. Yes. That, um, that, uh, it, that's part of a strategy called happens before, which is, uh, it's kind of an evolution of the first one. Um, but, so I would say we can get to that in a sec. If oh, we can. okay. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I had, uh, I had removed that part from the note, but I added it back. Um, I, so anyway, it's inside baseball, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it's back in there. So, uh, the, the kind of simplest case is, uh, we say, uh, two clients went and wrote version number 17. And remember, these things don't necessarily know that there's a problem, right? So the problem is discovered sometime in the future when a client reads and says, hey, I asked all of you to give me the data for this entity, and I got two different version 17s that had different values. So I've noticed that there's a problem. Uh, So how do we choose which one's the right one? Well, if all you have is version number 17 and the data, you have nothing else to go on. So the client's going to have to pick one and say, well, okay, crap. Well, uh, hey, uh, AB, you know, any, meeny, miny, mo. here you go. You're going to take now this version 17 and now you guys are going to be consistent because remember the goal here is to eventually become consistent. So one's going to get picked at this point. Now, if you have any extra data that could be used here, like per, perhaps uh, like a time, like a timestamp or something, then that client could use that information to say, 
oh, you know what? Um, this one actually came in uh, an hour after the the first one, so we're going to update everybody with this number 17. And so this is the one that wins, and if this data you know matters or, or whatever, uh, that's just too bad because uh, our goal here is to be consistent, not correct. <laughs> Sounds crazy, computer science terms, but that's what we're talking about. And that's <clears throat> and that is the last right wins scenario, right? And, we're, and and that's hard to say because clock time we've talked about is not easy to do across replicated systems. Well, this is where that row version idea that I was talking about comes into play, because in in the case of this system, as a client, if you're very aware of what that version number is, and one one write concurrently happens to one node and another write happens to another node and maybe like a third one, like read from one of those, like um, I'm trying to think how that strategy, the original idea that I had, but basically the idea was that like one of those is going to have a later time or a later version number. And so the system would know that that was the last version number or the last, you know, that, that that's supposed to be the last, write. And again, that's just me trying to rethink like, Hey, how could I do this in this other system? But <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that if I remember right, that, uh, the, the conflict free replicated data types was mentioned, uh, a couple times in, in the first time I thought was in this portion of the book. Yeah, it oh, was maybe. mentioned here and they have a whole set of data types that help deal with these conflicts. <clears throat> okay. I remember uh, Cassandra had another kind of technique they, where they recommended basically saying every write is immutable and you generate a UUID here for each write. So that each one is unique and you can kind of tell them apart. And one trick you can do with UUIDs, which I'm, I'm not sure if they use it in here, but um, you can make sure that they're always increasing. So if you get that UUID from like a centralized server or something, so you know, for example, that that's always an increasing value, then you can take a look at the two UUIDs. This one's greater than that one, so it came later, so let's do that. Of course, the obvious problem there is uh, sometimes depending on which parts of the document you're changing, it may not make sense to take the later one. Maybe you want to take the earlier one. Maybe you want to merge them both. That's something we'll get to in a minute here. But um, either way, <laughs> either the system's going to make a decision and it could be wrong or it's got to throw some sort of like conflict out and have a, a manual intervention by a you know developer or DBA or someone's going to have to go in there and say, I want this and not that. I mean, you know, kind of going back to some of the, examples there from the previous section, you know, if, if the three of us are working in say a Google document all at the same time, putting it together, like maybe we're writing a book and I change the title at the same time that Joe uh, changes the first sentence of the intro paragraph. That's an example that goes where you don't necessarily want to get rid of my change <coughs> just because it, you know, yours might technically be like a millisecond later. And by a last right win strategy, okay, sure, fine, it's last right. But, you know, again, that goes back to like knowing what your data usage pattern is going to be and like which one of these scenarios is going to work for your need. Yep. And then we get back into this whole this happens before relationship and concurrency. And we've talked about this in the past, the causal relationships, but <clears throat> they basically say there's ways to know whether or not these, these rights are concurrent or not. Right. Um, and, and it all boils down to if one right <laughs> knows about another, right. So if 
th- there's three possible states. If you have two pieces of data that are trying, if you have two writes that are trying to happen to the same exact data, then either A happened before B, B happened before A, or A and B happened at the same time. And if they happen at the same time, then they're considered concurrent. And now you got to figure out, well, which one wins. Um, it's there, easy when A happened for B because you just say, hey, well, B was a later value. I'm going to take that one. When it when it comes in concurrently, now you have conflict resolution that you have to go after. Well, it was also, they said it was easier, like when there was that causal relationship the, to know what the ordering was supposed to be. So right. one of the examples that was given in the book was that like, if B is an up- update <clears throat> statement, then you know that A had to happen first as an insert because otherwise, because B is dependent on the data being inserted and that's why it's trying to do an update. Um, but if both of them were, you know, insert statements, then there's not necessarily, you know, there is no such relationship there to know that like one had to happen before the other. Right. And this is where they get into like some of the, the merging things that you could do with this data. So you could do the last right wins, which we talked about a minute ago, or maybe you just say, Hey, union all the data together, right? Like if it's, if it's some sort of collection and I think they gave an example of like a shopping, oh, the shopping cart. cart, we're not going to go into that thing because it tied our minds up in knots, just trying to read it and <laughs> yeah. look at the, at the image. But I could summarize it. I, I'll summarize it this way. Uh, cause, cause I, I had a hard time with that, with that section with the shopping cart example, but do either of you use like a, a shopping app for your favorite, like for your preferred grocery store, for example? No. Oh, really? Kind of. <clears throat> kind of. I go to my preferred grocery store. Okay. Weirdos. Um, I don't know these people, <laughs> but <clears throat> I live in the year 2021 and we have this great ability to where, uh, we can use an app to do all of our grocery shopping and stuff just gets magically uh, appears in our car. When we happen to drive by, they just throw it into your car. It's really cool. Um, but anyway, where I was going with that, though, is I was thinking like you could get in a situation where like, hey, maybe I'm um, looking at it from the computer. Like, OK, this is the bulk of what I need, blah, 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 blah. Oh, wait a minute. Do I have something? Let me go look in the refrigerator. So you, then you take your phone, you go walk to the refrigerator. Like, you know what? I need to add some eggs to it, blah, blah, blah. So you, the point is, is that you had multiple grocery items that were being inserted into your shopping cart from multiple different devices. And no one device might have the entire list at that particular time until it's like, oh, I tried to write it and now I'm going to merge all of that together because I see that you know, this other device added eggs to the list and I only knew of bacon and milk. And now I'm going to merge all that together. And where the problem comes up with that, which kind of, they didn't call it out specifically, but last episode, if you recall, we talked about an, an issue where Amazon would, um, like there was, there was this bug that Amazon had where you would add items to the shopping cart and then you would delete items and then items would magically reappear sometimes. And they didn't call it out specifically in this portion, that, that bug as, as this portion, if I recall correctly, that but it definitely did make me remember that idea. And they called out that in the case that when you're only adding in items, then it's easy to just keep merging the collections together. Not a problem. Right. 
But if you were going to do a deletion, then you had to, that's where you absolutely had to have tombstone markers to, so that the data still stayed in the collection, but as a known delete. Right. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you didn't know that it was supposed to be gone. Yeah. And we say tombstone, we basically say like, we don't just delete the item from the cart. You say, actually you keep a record that says this item had been added and then it was removed. So if you right. get a, like a, you know, a late kind of sinking data here, then we know that, you know, we should have deleted it. And now, right. and now for your mind melt section, you re add the item to your cart. <laughs> yeah. What do you do then? Right. Then you have another version on it, right? Yeah, that's the only way to do it. Yeah. So, so yeah, at any rate, that whole section, I highly recommend if you get this book, just, you know, <clears throat> sit down for a 30 minute meal and be fresh and, in the morning when you read that section yeah, is my yeah. advice to you. Like it, it's, it's not, not even a bad long. section and yeah, no, yeah. it's only like a couple pages long, but it is a bit of a, like if you're not used to working in that type of system and that type of environment, it's a bit of a mind melting kind of thing. Like, wait, what, why? Yeah. So, trying trying to keep it all in sync. And that's why we don't want to talk about it. It's and almost, now it gets even more confusing when we go to here. Yeah. Well, it, it's, I think that would have been harder to describe, which by the way, the multiple device thing was really good. Um, it, but if we had tried to replicate what they talked about in the book, it would have been worse than us drawing diagrams um, through yeah. our talking. So um, so then the last little section that we had here on the leader list were version vectors. Um, and this is kind of interesting. So basically, if you take a record that exist on multiple replicas and you get that version number for, for that same record across those replicas, that collection of those versions is called a version vector. And this is where they go back at like Reoc apparently does some, some interesting things all the way around in this whole leaderless thing, because they have what they call dotted version vectors. And what that means is they send the vector, they send the vectors back to the clients when the values are read and then when they go to do the writes, they send all those versions back at the same time as well. And then that's how, and I mean, we, they didn't get it in the details and, and, and probably for good reason, but it does some sort of comparison to know, you know, Hey, yeah, this one's good to update here, right? Like it helps with its own conflict resolution. I mean, this kind of goes back to the idea that I was describing earlier, where like, if you were just thinking in like a SQL server world and you're thinking about the row versions, Right. If that is part of the identifier that is included back with the data and, and Reoc apparently has like data types where I, I'm assuming that that's abstracted away from you. You don't even realize that it's there. Then, then when, when you as a client try to send that data back, then, uh, the, then the server can know, can deal with like, Hey, I just got multiples of these and I can like look at those version numbers to see like, Hey, who has, if I'm going to go with a last right win strategy, which one do I want to use? And, and they actually, if I remember right, and this, this was the portion of the book where there was also, you know, so far we were talking about like, um, <coughs> the version numbers as it might relate to a single system, but there was also, a, a um, identifier for the actual server itself. And I think that this was, um, I don't remember if this was specific to Reoc or if it was just elsewhere, but basically as part of that version vector, you might not only just have an ID or a version ID for the document or row or whatever, however you want to refer to it, but also for the host that it was on as well. So that you could kind of like know 
oh yeah, this this is the version from there, and that's why it's got that score. Or yeah, I think they said that in Reoc they actually convert that. They take it and they sort of I don't know that they said they hash it, but they turn it into a string by combining some of those pieces, and then that allows them to understand, hey, is this data an overwrite? Or is it some sort of concurrent thing? Um, and it also, they, they talked about creating these sibling um, data sets or, or updates. And this would allow them to be able to merge these siblings properly by using these vectors. So again, there's probably a whole bunch going on behind the scenes there. And I'm guessing each database system does it a little bit differently. So, you know, that's that's about as deep as we went into that. So it sounds like, uh, from what we're hearing so far that Reoc is pretty stellar, right? It sounds like, right? it sounds pretty awesome, right? If you had to just pick a number off the top of your head, cause I'm asking you, then, uh, where do you think it falls on uh DB engines ranking? I've barely heard of it. I, so I would say probably pretty low. I mean, uh, what, what's the number between that we got? Like what's the max n- Number. Oh, geez. That we Max got number is on 350. The well, there's a bunch. Jeez, what is this? Um, I guess they get tied at some point. And okay. so I'm going to say they're down there 90. I'll put Cassandra at like top 20, though, probably. Cassandra, I would, I, that sounds reasonable. Um, You're right on Cassandra. Cassandra is 11, but yeah. Rioc is there's two versions of it. There's a key value version that is 66. And then there's a time series version of it that is 258 way down. Yeah. So, I mean, it seemed to get a lot of love in this book, but um, maybe it's not as, you know, once I saw like the time series and the key value parts, I'm like, Oh, maybe it's not quite as like general purpose. It's like a little bit more, Cause you, you know, when I think of like key value think kind of things, then like, like a Redis, for example, is what I think about in that kind of thing. Like, you know, caching type things. Um, so, so maybe it's not like general purpose kind of database and that's, but it does have some like really slick features about it. Yeah. So I kind of, um, so I, when I think Cassandra, I think like Columnar, I think like analytics, like really great adding, you know, fast writes, uh, leaderless. So I, I know it's used a lot in that space. Like everything I learned about React, it sounds really great. It sounds like, uh, you know, Dynamo competitor, but it's also a Mongo competitor, which is just ferociously, you know, if you're talking about, uh, uh obviously, you know, said so there's two different kinds of React. There's the, the K, the key or the document type. But, uh, and you, as soon as you say like document DB, I start thinking Mongo. Um, well, I mean, so it is popular. It is by far not even close the most popular document database there is like not even close yeah so i don't know if that's part of it or you know what the deal is like maybe reacts only for super scale okay but but uh cassandra is a wide column database but wide column is not the same thing as columnar storage yeah i looked it up to double check it so they also consider it columnar so it kind of um, wide column columns, like it kind of boils down to it being sparse. So you can have rows with different numbers of columns. Yeah. But the columns do line up. And so that's kind of like the, the trick and distinction there between the wide column. But I'm far from expert in Cassandra. I just, 
spent a couple of hours playing with it and was just looking at my notes. But but columnar storage database would be something like analysis services, for example, or um, what was that competitor that we looked at that was um, Alan? Druid. No, Druid. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those there's, they're, they're different, right? Cause those are OLAP databases, right? And Cassandra are, is not. But, but the columnar is more about how the data is stored so you can query it faster. Right. So I, uh, Why, but yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah. it's interesting, but I don't, I'm, I th- thought that wide column did not equal columnar. And if yeah, you want to sell me, I'm wrong and leave a comment so that you can have a chance to win the book. Then uh, you can go to www.codingblocks.net slash episode one, six, two. Yeah. Like, oh, just to walk it back. So I well, have one spot. So if you look at DB engines, it does mention it as columnar, but then I did a little bit more Googling and it gets crazier. They call it a, a column family, uh, column family store. Wait, so, they call Cassandra columnar. So DB, DB engines, engines does, but I kind of, I don't want to say anything cause it's like, there's some very subtle distinctions. And so it's like, basically don't listen to anything I have to say about this. <laughs> uh, I don't even, awesome. I, I mean like that's what I'm tripping on is like, I'm not even looking at the same thing you're seeing. Cause like, I'm not seeing where it refers to it as columnar. And that's why I'm like, wait, are we talking about the same thing? Yeah. So um, I don't know where I saw it now. So yeah, wide column, wide column store. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find out if they even have a columnar storage on here so that I could see like how they would refer to it. So like, for example, if I were to search for analysis services, that doesn't even show up in, in here. Was well, there any they cube? Do have Druid. Like Druid is Druid in there and it's called a multi-model. So wide column stores, they basically say, because a record can have billions of columns, like not necessarily a fixed, they say it's seen as a two-dimensional key value store. So basically you have your key value, your key to get to the main record, and then you can look up other things within the record. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it share, shares characteristics of being schema-free with document stores, but the implementation is different. Oh, and but it's check not this to out. be confused with column-oriented yes. storage in some relational systems. This is an internal concept for improving the performance of an RDBS for OLAP workloads and stores the data of a table, not record after record, but column by column. So very much like what you said earlier, OLAP is more like it's tied to columnar storage. As and, opposed to this, where it has its own, yeah, and, and Cassandra is not right. Right. Okay. Right. Row oriented, but but the yeah. So it, it yeah, it's it's really tough to like. We need a Cassandra expert on here. So well, they don't even nervous about even talking about it. Common. They don't even have like uh, on DB Engines they don't even list like columnar storage databases unless it's listed as something else that I'm not seeing. Like even for Druid, they referred to it as multi-model. And I'm where where was Druid again? Because they gave an explanation as to why. 119 or no 100. It, it, they called it relational DBS and time series DBS. Which but it that, is very much a time series. It's odd that they even listed it as relational, to be honest with you. Hmm. But All it's right. definitely, they definitely describe it as an OLAP database. Okay. I don't know. I don't understand the internet anymore. Um, none of this makes sense. Yeah. It gets, it gets really sticky. And like I said, leave us a review and you can explain to me 
And by doing so, not only do I get to benefit from it by learning from your amazing knowledge, but you get a chance to win the book because this is an amazing book that everybody should have on their bookshelf. I would, I would dare to say that next to your copy of the gang of four, you would have designing data intensive applications. I feel that strongly about the book. And uh, if you have read it and you disagree and want to fight me, um, you can meet me out after school at three fifteen in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> no man, it's a gas station. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, we will have obviously some links to resources we like, Surely this book will be one of them. Uh, I know the guy that does the notes, so I'll, I'll make sure that that is the case. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. And I'm stealing a tip here from cb.show slash tips. So thank you, Michael G provider of so many great jokes for this, uh, for this tip. I'm uh, borrowing. You can have it back. Uh, it's a list in GitHub of awesome falsehoods. And falsehoods, uh, what we're talking about here, the programmer's belief. Yep. uh, Falsehoods in this case are things that are commonly believed by people that maybe aren't uh, necessarily into that domain very much, uh, but are actually not true. And so I I looked at a couple of these and uh, the first one I clicked on was music. And so I'll I'll give you a couple examples here is uh, music can be written down. Right. Like we've all seen sheet music, right? We've all seen MIDI data. We've seen all sorts of stuff. But when it comes down to it, <laughs> there's not a great way to capture every nuance. And, you know, you, like you can pluck a string with your finger. You can pluck it with your uh, pick. You can bang it with your hand. You can hit it with a tin can. You can do all sorts of stuff in order to kind of make these sound. so it's not fully reproducible. Oh, I, I can even I can even do it better than that. Um, the timing. The timing of the other thing. OK, it's four four. OK, what does that mean? Like. That that tells me how oh, many yeah. how many counts to give for a given note, but like how fast is how fast am I one two three four one two three four or am I one two three and they try to give you like hey here's the uh you know this is moderately fast or whatever but there's still no like you know dedi- and they they'll give you like you know hey you can set your uh, metronome to this setting but even there's times where um I think I was talking with you about this earlier Jay Z where some systems you can like play along uh, with the music. And like, if you're listening to the music as you're watching these, this automated system, like roll through it, that it will either finish before or after the song that you're actually listening to play. So there is no, there isn't, you know, uh, like a, a correct, you know, one way to, that we all agree on, like, here's the, the tempo, you know, as a, as a, mathematical fact right yeah you can take a song and you know set your metronome to it and it sounds great until it, it does it doesn't because the original artist didn't play along with the metronome so is it really 120 beats per minute or is right. it however fast the drummer played you know yeah uh here's another one so uh you know there's more than one variant of the metric system so i jumped to the science category here and this is just something where like you might think like there's a uh, empirical and there's metric and so you go and build a system not realizing that people that are deeper into like machine, you know, industrial design, that there's actually two different metric systems, MKS and CGS. I don't know what that is, but it's just kind of cool to go in there and see like, Hey, this is a domain I'm interested in. Maybe I'll make an app here. And whoa, apparently I don't know. Finding something about fonts here. Uh, did you know, 
Actually, I know all these things. I guess I know a lot about fonts. <laughs> yeah, wow, I'm like a font genius here. I'm sorry. Well, I might not be. No, this is, this is everything. Yeah, you, you already know everything about fonts, apparently. All right, let me find another one. <laughs> Do I? Do Falsehoods I? about Bitcoin. Oh, oh my uh, gosh. Uh, that you can oh. get rich on it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you guys, okay, I did you guys see this story where there was a kid from Georgia, I say kid, I think he was in his 20s, um, he invested $20 in some random crypto, one that I had never heard of, but he had been playing it in the crypto market for like the past, you know, six to eight months, and he invested a total of $20 into some random crypto, went to bed, wakes up the next morning. $1.4 trillion is in his Coinbase account. Did you see that but story? He wasn't able to withdraw any of it. Yeah. Exactly for him, no. That's terrible. Yeah. That do, that right there would put a lump in your throat, I think. <laughs> you wake up and you're the one the richest single person in the world, all because you were smart enough to invest twenty dollars. That's crazy. Yeah. It it would have been amazing if he could have actually withdrawn any of it. That would have actually made me smile really big. Uh, here, here's an example I found that's pretty good. And this is one that programmers will be more likely to be familiar with. But um, what's the format of an IP address? You might be tempted to say, well, it's between uh, 0 and 255, you know, four times separated by dots. I'm like, well, that's IPv4. Uh, IPv6 is different. What about ciders? Those represent ranges. Also, IPv6 is also uh, all sorts of cool rules about how you can condense it. So, like, zeros don't have to be rendered. So, it's totally valid to have colons next to colons. Because you've compressed it and you can even say you can re- replace repeatable zeros and there's all sorts of rules around it. And all those are valid. So if you've got a form that takes in an IP address and you don't take in all the valid formats, then that's uh, somewhere where someone who doesn't know as much about IPs might think that the simple stuff that they're used to seeing is okay. And so this is just a list of links to these domains that have these old subtleties that matter if you're working in them that you might take for granted. Email addresses are another good one. Yeah, and zip codes. Like once you get out of the U.S., like even like how many how many numbers is there in zip code? You might say five, but now it's much more common in the year 2020, 2021 to uh, to see the dashes in the next four that take it out another level. And who knows what they'll add in the future? Hey, so it's just really hard to know. But they have an awesome one on here. I see ISO eighty six zero one. Our friend, and they specifically call out string formatting of date is hard. <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. Yep. All right. Well, uh, now that I don't know what I thought I did know, um, thanks Mike RG for pointing that out to us and we can pass along that to everybody else and make them feel worse about their day too. But, <laughs> uh, how about one that I don't know if you know? So, uh, this came up because in conversation I was talking with a friend, um, because, he wanted to do a cron job, but he really only needed to do it like one time and he wanted to do it at a specific time. And that was, it was, you know, one and done. Right. And I was like, well, you know, there's actually a better way to do that there. You can use an at command. Have you ever used these? Are you guys familiar with this? Um, so uh, if you don't already have it, you can do a sudo app install at just the, literally the letters at and, what you can do then is you can say at in a time and then give it a command. And it's, it's basically like a one-time cron job. It's going to, whatever time you give it, 
It's going to, so you can, and you can give it like specific, like human readable kind of times, which still blows my mind because it's so much easier. Cause you could say like at eight Oh three PM and then a command and it figures that out. And I'm like, uh, what? We just talked about 80, ISO 8601 and how dates are hard. Like how did it figure that out? How did it know? But it does. And, and there's like some other commands that go around it. Like, um, there's at Q. So that if you have a queue of things, you can see what that queue is. And then with the at command, you can do, um, I want to say it's like a dash I to where you can inspect what the, um, uh, content of that job is. So, so at a given time, and you could even do like, if you wanted to pass it a file, you could say like, Hey, at 8 PM, uh, dash F and then point it to a file, which could be a script of like, you know, a bunch of things that you want to have happen. If, you, if you need to do that, then there's some, there's some other commands that can go around it to like manage that queue. So if you wanted to remove something from it, um, uh, I mentioned the at queue, but if you wanted to at remove a particular job from that queue, you could at RM all as one concatenated, uh, you know, quote word, it's not really a word, but you know, one command, um, and, and you'd give it the ID. So in that case, it would be important to have looked at the output from at Q so that you can do the, um, the at RM. And in fact, I think if you wanted to see the output, um, if you wanted to like verify the given command that, um, that at command that I mentioned, you had to know from at Q what your output ID is in order to know it. And, and you'll be able to see, like, it'll create, it'll show you like, all of the environment variables and, you know, that the, the whole profile that that shell is going to run under, you know, all, everything it would do the same as if it was, um, you know, as if you had logged in and you were running like your bash RC or your Z shell RC or whatever, you know, you, you would see all of that as part of it. Right. Um, and you know, there's at allow and deny, uh, users that you could add to it. And then there's a batch version of that, which is basically there's a batch command. That's like a, a shortcut to the at command with the dash B parameter. So I know there's a lot to take in and I'm saying like at a lot of times with a lot of stuff, but I'm going to include a, a link to um, uh, a Linux eyes article that talks about this and like all the cool things that you can do with it. Um, but yeah, if you ever need like a one, one and done. So by the way, uh, I, cause I use this all the time. Um, every time that we, you know, a little bit of behind the scenes things here. So when we publish an episode, um, yeah, sure. You can go in and use your, your content management system and schedule the post and whatever, but we, um, we flatten our feed so that we're not constantly hitting the database. So it's just, you know, it's rent. So that's rendered out one time. And so, uh, every, you know, thing is pointing to that rendered out feed, right. That's already been flattened. So anytime I'm publishing an episode, I will say, okay, you know, publish, publish, you know, I'll tell the content management system, Hey, public post the, you know, make it public at this particular time. And then I set an at command to flatten the feed at this other time after the, the article has been published. So yeah, That's I mean, cool. it gets used That's regularly. <clears throat> That's excellent. And in fact, I've even scripted it around, you know, but whatever. Beautiful. 
All right. I've got a couple here. The first one, we've talked about Kotlin a ton of times on the show. We're all fans of it. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Like it's just an excellent language. Well, um, I know that we've talked about some of these online playgrounds that you can do for like C sharp and JavaScript. Like if, if you ever need to do anything, well, there's one for Kotlin that they actually host themselves and you can go to play.kotlinlang.org and you can play around with Kotlin without actually having to go get an IDE or anything. Just try it out. Um, they've got examples that you can click on and it'll show you some stuff. Uh, they've even got like a little, um, learning type thing there. So, uh, fantastic way to get your hands dirty with it and see if it's something that you're interested in. Oh man, this is actually really cool. Uh, I didn't realize this, but the, um, it's actually like our friends at educative where when you want to learn something like there's a, there's a, a block there that you can like, actually, if you go to the examples portion mm-hmm. on the, the Kotlin playground, you can edit the block and then click the play button and you'll see it happen there in your browser. It's really cool, isn't it? It, it is like- really slick. Yeah, this is this is good I'm gonna, stuff. I'm going to say that they borrowed that idea from Educative because um, I, I'm mean, sure this is probably one of the best ways to learn some of the um, nuances of the language. Like if you if you're trying yeah. to come from something else, because what Outlaw was just saying is, you click those examples on the left. It'll have like they have a section for like flow control. So if you want to do win or loops or ranges they've got all the code there on the page and you can just play with it and see what happens. So it's, it's a great way to get your head wrapped around their syntax and, and all the little bits there. Um, so yeah, highly recommend checking that out. If you've never looked at Kotlin, we love it. Um, you can even introduce errors and it will like show you the lines of code that erred. Oh, nice. So they've got like a little compiler in there. (laughs) So, Here's here's one for anybody out there doing Docker files to build Docker images and all that kind of stuff. So I happen to be working on a project that's got a lot of Maven dependencies and it's brutal. Like like downloading those dependencies can take a long time <laughs> being nice. Um and so when you go to do something like a Docker build how you set up your Docker file is super duper important. So I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes here to the copy command inside a Docker file. And what I want to call out here is to me, one of the most important things that's really easy to overlook is in the bottom of that section, they have a little note block and it says this, the first encountered copy instruction will invalidate the cache for all following instructions from the Docker file, if the contents of the source copy have changed. So if a single file has changed, it will invalidate the entire Docker file cache of the layers after that. And it'll have to rebuild them all. So I, I was curious because like I, I saw that you shared this earlier and, and, I guess what surprised me was that um, I guess what surprised me is that you were surprised by, because like if you had any line change, it doesn't necessarily have to be a copy command, right? In Docker, in the Docker file, if, if let's say you had a 37 line file, right? If line seven changed 
anything about line seven changed, whether it's copying files in or, you know, you change the name of the script, then all lines after line seven are now invalidated, right? I'm not talking about changing the line. I'm talking yeah, yeah. about the actual source contents change. Right. And so all. in this case, you're copying a file in right. to it, and that would that that would cause it to invalidate, which would invalidate and, everything below it. And it's not surprising when you think about how Docker layers work, but if you're doing something like building an application, like using Maven, inside your Docker build, it's going to create a targets directory, right? So you automatically change the file structure of the system, especially if you map the volume to get those things in. And so anytime you do a copy dot and then space dot slash, your file contents are changing every single time. And, and, and you may not know it. You may not realize it. So, there's two important call outs here. One, be aware of what's in your copy statements. Um, and the route that I was starting to go down was to explicitly copy in my palm files and then explicitly copy in the source files, right? Which meant a whole bunch of copy statements, like a, a lot of lines of that. Uh, like copy the palm, e- then yeah. install the dependencies, then do your code, then. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a whole lot of stuff. And the thing that stinks is when you're in development mode, you're changing that stuff quite a bit, right? Yeah. Which which means that you have to rem- it's not so bad that you're going to have to rebuild these things anyways, but you'd have to remember to go back into your Docker file and say, "Oh yeah, I added a new folder with a new palm with new sources." And so you can't forget that. So, the second part of my tip here is you can leverage a Docker ignore file, a dot docker ignore file. So it's very similar to a git ignore file in, in the way that the, the expressions work. So what you can do is you can say, omit all the target files, omit all the additional directories and things that you don't need. And then that way you can just say copy dot space dot slash, which means says copy everything from my root directory in, but ignore all the targets, ignore all these and essentially what I did is I made sure that I kept all the proper directories that have POM files in them and any source directories. And then that way I guaranteed I'm only getting the things I care about to actually build the applications. Wait, so, okay, go ahead finish. So that's Sorry. basically it. Um, what I was going to say with that is that the, in, in part of, I mean, sometimes it's just like relative to like the things that you've already been working on and like, you know, whatever your current ex- experiences are, you know, that that's what you're going to base your, you know, quote normal on or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, so I guess why it didn't, th- that, the fact that it was going to eliminate everything after it didn't, you know, I was like, yeah, I, you know, that, that part didn't surprise me was because we are already doing this elsewhere in, in, you know, this behind the scenes, but in our applications, Specific to like, um, and this is why maybe you didn't see this or know about this because you've been in Kotlin land while I've been in .NET land and we have this other .NET line land where we do have a large uh, Docker file where we are doing all of these copy statements like you described, but also doing them in specific orders of like 
Well, this one doesn't change as often. And then things that do change more often are near the end of that copy statement right. so that you can have like this strategy of like, it, I mean, it does suck because like you are taking the hit of, you know, trying to like manually optimize this Docker thing, but you know, it's so that you can get it, the, the advantage of the caching, but doing some of that .NET development, I have, you know, f- where with these Docker builds, I have like been hit where it's like, Oh, sometimes it's really fast. And then sometimes it's like, Oh, I changed something a little early up in there. And so boom, you know, I take a hit. Um, but, but the, the but, key part for me was I didn't want to manage like, and I think I had seen the .NET version of it where you got a bunch of different copies in there. I didn't want a hundred of those things yeah. because the project that we're working on is growing and growing and growing. And I didn't want to have to remember, Oh, I added this folder. Okay. It crashed when I went to deploy it. Okay. I didn't add it in the Docker file. I wanted to be like, now granted what I do lose in the way that I'm doing it is what you're saying is if there's one project in there that changes less frequently than others, I don't get the benefit of that. Right. Like, because I, I'm not doing it in any particular order. Although, I did have a thought earlier today as well along these lines is I would probably not be crazy to think that maybe I just generate this Docker file and I also generate the Docker ignore files sort of on the fly. Um, No, that wouldn't work too well only because then you lose all the caching, but it could make it to where anytime you add new projects, it builds things in a proper order. Um, so I don't know, man, you could look at metadata. If you use something like sonar cube or any of those that tell you like which files or which projects change the most, you could probably use something like that, generate a good one, but I don't know. I think, I think the part of the takeaway there, there though, is that is the difference in the use case is that, um, if I understood correctly too, a lot of the things that you want to cache though are things that you're downloading. So it's not like you already have them necessarily. Right. Like you got to go and get them. So it'd be like, you know, let, let's, let's take either of these situations out of the equation and say like, it'd be like trying to cache your node modules directory. Right. It's very like much like that. You're not going to know all of those things in advance necessarily to be like, okay, copy this node, fo- this folder from the node modules. Now copy that one. Now copy that one. Now copy that, one. you know, I mean, technically, could you go figure it out? Yeah, maybe. You know, it sounds really tedious. I don't want to do it. Um, so maybe that's exactly, the exactly. It's not exactly like that. I mean, to to break it down so that that people get the context of like what you just said with the npm thing, right? Like the way that you get those those modules downloaded is you do an npm install, right? And then that would bring them all down locally. I do have a step like that, but that builds a base image that then my next image will use. And then that way, all those dependencies are cached already in that. And if nothing changes in there, then that image never gets rebuilt. I don't take that hit anymore. But the part that I was talking about was very similar to your .NET one, which is I have a bunch of projects and I don't want to have to call out every single palm, just like, like you have to call out every SLN or every CS proj file. I don't want to call them all out. I just want it to intelligently include all my palm files and all my source files. Um, not necessarily in any great order, but just make sure they're all there so that when I do a, a, a build, it'll have everything it needs. Right. Um, so it may not be in the perfect order, but 
but you know, assuming not much changes, it should cache and stay good. So, so just know that the copy statement does matter a lot, but yep. also you can use the Docker ignore, which will limit the files that actually get pulled in when you do your copy statement, right? Like anything that your copy does <clears throat> will have already ignored everything that was in that Docker ignore. Like file, any of which your is, local build artifacts you would want to exclude because totally you know, those yep. are, those are going to change, but the source behind it might not change. Right. So yeah. So I mean, the important thing is we learned Docker ignore. Hey, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, with that, we hope you've also learned a bunch of stuff too, because uh, I know I have. And uh, if you enjoyed the show, and even if you didn't enjoy the show, subscribe anyways. I mean, let's be honest, just subscribe, and you can find us uh, wherever you like to find your podcasts. And if if we're if there's some place that you like to find podcasts and uh, we aren't there, um, reach out to Alan and complain to him. That, <laughs> that right. would be my recommendation. I have a good SLA. Yeah. Uh, uh, get to yeah. <laughs> oh God, I forgot his SLA. <laughs> reach out to Joe. Reach out to Joe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, trouble. Um, tweet us. I don't know. Um, it's better. Yeah. At any rate, uh, as, uh, Alan said earlier in his, uh, you know, smooth jazz, uh, voice there for his late night, uh, radio, DJ hosting job that he's going to start pretty soon. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't already, we would greatly appreciate it. If you left us a review, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Hey, and while you're up there at the site, make sure you do check out the show notes examples. We have all kinds of discussion. And remember, if you leave a comment on this show, you'll have an opportunity to win a copy of the book. And uh, yeah, we got a Twitter. Um, you won't see a lot of, of uh, hot takes. You're not going to see uh, lots of uh, threads like you see on Twitter. What we, we will see are uh, good retweets, funny jokes, and uh, sometimes pictures of pets. Yeah, so there we go. Check it out. That's all, all that matters. Check it out. <laughs>